Well, as I thought about today's episode of the Building Faith podcast, I was sort of oddly reminded of a movie, an iconic movie from the mid-1980s, a romantic fairy tale comedy called The Princess Bride. Now, you might be wondering what on earth could The Princess Bride have to do with the subject of racial tension, which is the subject we're undertaking right now in our podcast series. But if you've seen the movie, and I'm guessing it's probably a better question to not ask, how, have you seen The Princess Bride, but maybe how many times you've actually seen The Princess Bride. It's just one of those kind of iconic movies that many people have seen many times. But it's a movie that's filled with a lot of memorable characters, a lot of memorable, funny, and quotable lines. One of the most memorable characters, of course, is Indigo Montoya, and certainly he's responsible for a number of very memorable lines. But there's one line in particular that that takes place in a scene where he's responding to another character, Vizzini, who in the movie, Vizzini is repeatedly using this word inconceivable. But he uses the term every time something happens that he never thought could happen. Inconceivable, he would exclaim. And after a few occasions of this kind of exclamation of the word inconceivable, our beloved Indigo Montoya simply says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Well, in just a moment, I'll be joined by Shane Kohler, teaching pastor at Faith Community Church in Woodstock, Georgia. And as we dive a bit deeper into our discussion about racial tension, we're going to see that there are several terms that are often repeated by pundits and by politicians, by professors, by protesters, that they just probably don't mean what you might think they mean. So stay tuned for the Building Faith Podcast. All right, so Shane, last time we were together, we kind of got started on this really uh, uniquely challenging subject of racial tension. And um, and really, you, you summed it up, I think, in a, in a really uh, important and powerful way in terms of calling us to really look for the hope in whatever messages we're listening to, whatever information we're kind of imbibing regarding this difficult and compl- complex matter. But you want to pro- provide some summary of uh, what we talked about last time? Yes, we're you know we're dealing with a complex subject, and and so it's going to take a couple of uh, podcasts to deal with this. It shouldn't surprise us. Uh, you know, this is uh, this is a topic which obviously has a long history in our nation, and involves uh, such a, a massive swath of people, um, and is obviously at the forefront of the news cycle right now. So, you know, we we do need to deal with this uh, in in a thorough way, and so we've tried to break that down. And last time, really, what we focused on was uh, one simple but I think profound point, which is the fact that the current uh, discussions of social justice are are uh, presented in such a way as having no real hope of redemption. Or another another way to say that is that the redemption that is really being uh, proposed is at best a redemption of merit. Which puts it on a completely opposite, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
threshold than than Christianity. It mm-hmm. is a different religion in right. a sense. There is no you know uh, dominant uh, message of of uh, forgiveness or or mercy or any of those things that you would expect coming out of the scripture. And so that's why I think Christians find what they're hearing somewhat difficult to reconcile with their understanding of Christianity. While they understand guilt, and while they understand sin, and while they understand those concepts, what they're hearing in the current uh, in in the current climate is is not squaring with their understanding. And we want to talk about that a little bit today because people have to realize that this is not by accident. I mm-hmm. mean, this is very intentional. You know, one of the, I guess you might say, chief spokespersons in the in the social justice movement, um, you know, today is Robin DiAngelo. A lot of people are familiar with uh, her book, White Fragility, uh, or Is Everyone Really Equal? Those kinds of works that she's done. And, and she makes it clear, you know, in no uncertain terms that what she, the, the worldview she embraces, the worldview she's pushing, and we might say the worldview that is embraced by the, the, um, key leaders and spokesmen of the current social justice movement, they do not do they do not have a system of real redemption. No, uh, this is all about tearing down structures. Yeah, and and it's all about just constantly living under this, um, you know, this weight and this burden to disenfranchise yourself. Is really what they're they're all about, and and we'll talk about it in, in just a moment. But what they really are getting at is um, is that there's no way for you to be a uh, uh, free of the guilt of what they believe to be racism until you yourself are disenfranchised or you yourself are marginalized yeah. within society. Until you move from a power structure to a marginalized person, that's the only way of redemption, and and it's all about works. You know, they wouldn't use that terminology, but it's all about you know the kind of of, of efforts that you put but uh, put into it. But until then, you are hopelessly trapped in a world of guilt and shame and self-renunciation and and all those things. Even if they could get there, it's still an endless cycle. Yeah. Be- because you become marginalized, well, guess what? That cycle is going to repeat itself at yep. some point in time. Yes. I-, I think I had a quote here from Kevin DeYoung. I think he summarizes really well what a lot of people feel. Um, I-, I can just speak from my own experience and really connected with sort of, sort of what's gone through my mind uh, in the last year or so. He says in an article called uh, Thinking Theologically About Racial Tension, He says, for whites, it can feel like redemption is always out of reach. If you don't have animus in your heart, you have implicit bias that you can't see. If you haven't personally done anything against black people, other whites have, and you bear their shame. If you speak out, you should have listened. If you stay quiet, your silence is violence. If you do nothing tangible to counter injustice, that's sinful indifference. Try to take the lead in fixing things. You may want to check your white privilege. Your institution, uh, your institution shouldn't be all white, but it shouldn't engage in tokenism either. 
You should celebrate diversity, but with cultural, without cultural appropriation. And any disagreement with the fundamental contours of this one-way conversation is just another manifestation of your white fragility. Yeah. I mean, what he says, I think it's gone through most people's minds. And by the way, he has a follow-up paragraph on, you know, the way that, uh, you know, even blacks are somewhat boxed in uh, in the current conversation. People don't understand why this is happening. I think a lot of people sense it, but they don't understand why it's happening. But the reality is it's happening because Christians are, are embracing or imbibing a fundamentally non-Christian framework yeah. to talk about these issues right, right now. Right. And we as, as the church and we as, uh, as, as believers cannot do that. Yeah, that, that has to be stated with such force that, that it's, it's, not, it's not okay to embrace notions of justice or compassion or uh, you know, battling against oppressive systems when the foundations of the worldview that's driving that, that ideology is godless, and it's not just godless, but it's oriented toward deconstructing every semblance of gospel truth. It, it, in other words, in order for it to succeed, that has to be completely decimated. Yes, and, and this is what I think uh, traps Christians who are uh, sincere. I think many, many of them sincere right. in wanting to affirm this thing that they see going on culturally, but incredibly naive. Yeah. And 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 before long, they get wrapped up in it, and and all the frustration that comes with it, without realizing just how far they have strayed from the gospel. Right. So that's really what I wanted to spend a little bit of time today talking about, which is defining uh, very clearly what we're talking about, and we can begin just with racism. Uh, that 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 is sort of at the core of this. Uh, you know, racism, I think for most of us, uh, you know, we, we have certain ideas about what, what racism is. It is in some way, some sort of, uh, some sort of animosity um, th- that, or, or prejudice against other people based on their racial or ethnic identity. Now, the Bible uh, does not ever use the word racism. And, uh, you know, we've mentioned even here in, uh, in the past, I mean, there's some question whether racism is even a helpful word since we, all, we are all one race. The right. Scripture does affirm that we all are descendants of Adam. And so, you know, there are certain folks that like to put emphasis on, you know, ethnicity rather mm-hmm. than racism. And I think there's some, somewhat, you know, some help in that. But I think just, just talking about at the sort of, um, common level, right? It's a common convention of people to use the term racist or racism, and for us as believers, we generally define that, um, you know, with the overlay of other sins that are very clearly defined in the Scripture, whether it's malice or hatred or you know uh, uh, partiality. And all of those things are, are clearly condemned in Scripture. We know that they're condemned, and um, you know, we, we don't have any problem thinking clearly about that. 
Galatians chapter 5 would be you know, a great example when it talks about the works of the flesh. Um, it talks about having you know, enmity and pride and strife and animosity and all of those things. And, and, and it makes very, very clear that those are not only things that we should be avoiding, but those who are marked by such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so as Christians, we have, to, you know, we have to be utterly clear that when that kind of stuff manifests itself, and particularly when it manifests itself by way of partiality towards someone of, an, of a different ethnic group, it is repulsive to us. And it happens, and there's no, there's no debate here about that. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a reality in, in our experience and in our culture and modern day time, and we, have, we are not free from from these kinds of sinful prejudices against one another. Right. And and it 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 it, it happens, you know, by by common testimony. You and I have friends who've told us instances where they've experienced it. Right. My, you know, those who are in minority culture, you know, they share their stories and we grieve over that. It happens no doubt more often than I'm aware. Right. Uh it's not the only sin that happens more often that I'm aware. There's lots of sins that I'm not aware of because I, you know, I tend to spend the bulk of my time around Christian people. And so there's things going on out in the world that I just don't experience on a regular basis. Right. I'm sure if I was in certain different circles, I would see it more. But my experience is, you know, I don't, I don't, expe- I don't experience a whole lot of people that I know uh, who are expressing animosity, uh, disrespect, or anything towards people of a different race. I mean, they are genuine. Most people I hang out with are genuine Christian people who are marked by love, right. no matter what your racial, uh, you know, ethnic, uh, sociological, um, educational background is. I just, I have the blessed experience of being around a lot of loving people. right? And, um, and so my experience is, is that I don't see and, 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 um, I don't experience a lot of racism, but I don't. That doesn't make me question whether it exists. Like right, you said, right? We can affirm that. And if we had any doubt, you know, there are you know these these sort of white supremacist rallies that pop up, you know, every now and then to remind us that it it is still something that uh, sinful and foolish people in our nation uh, pursue and. And we all condemn it, you know, this— uh, Yeah, and we don't even have to go to that extreme. There's more subtle you yes, know, versions yeah. or brands of that that, yeah. that are more probably more common and not as, not as noticeable or not as you know, extreme in nature, but still would be characterized as, as sinful partiality or prejudice or however you want to— And I think that even we as Christians, as individual Christians, we have to acknowledge that any sin— is is something that's a potential temptation for us. Right. So I can't even sit around and point fingers and say, ah, oh, you know, those people who, you know, um, are are prone or apt to think about someone different than them in a derogatory way. Uh, I've got to be on guard against sin in my own life. If I look at whether it's a black uh, American or whether I, 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 you know, encounter an Asian person or dealing with someone from China or something like that, if I begin to treat them as something other than, you know, a, a, an image bearer of God, um, you know, I, I have veered into sin and I've got to guard myself the same way I have to guard myself against greed or lust or pride or anything else. Right. These are all sins. We're all human. 
We're all susceptible to them, but we we resoundingly condemn them. Right. Even though I have to say, you know, in my common experience, I don't see any, I don't see much evidence of them in my circles. Mm-hmm. And I'm confident of that. I'm confident of the fact that most of the Christians that I am around are, uh, are battling that sin and having victory over that sin, and I don't see it manifesting in their life like I don't see a lot of other sins manifesting in their life. Now, all that's very clear, and I think articulates well a Christian perspective, but, but we need to understand that what we're hearing from the culture when they use the word racism, that's not what they're that talking about. That is not about. it. No. They have a completely different perspective. Uh, they actually would differentiate racial prejudice from racism. And just, again, to read from, um, uh, you know, from D'Angelo, uh, she, in her book, uh, uh, Every, Is Everyone Really Equal?, um, she says, in uh, on in the introduction of that book explaining uh what you know the contents of the chapter chapters are she she mentions how in uh, chapter 5 she's going to take on the difference between the concepts such as race prejudice which anyone can hold and racism which quote occurs at the group level and is only perpetuated by the group that holds social, ideological, economic, and institutional power. So this is this is a key uh, this is a key concept that we've got to understand when we're listening to the narrative coming from the culture. When they use the word racism, they're not talking about it from a biblical framework. They're talking about it from a critical theory. Framework and and just to let people know, critical theory is a body of scholarship that refers to a body of scholarship, I should say, that examines how society works. It it basically embraces that society is structured in in various groups that are then categorized as uh, dominant and not dominant, or dominant and, and oppressed, or dominant and marginalized. However, you want to. Uh, framework and critical theory basically uh, um, separates groups of people in society that way. And so, when they think about racism, as D'Angelo says, it is explicitly not talking about individual attitudes or the attitudes you might encounter in an individual. It is explicitly referencing power structures. Mm. And so when they're talking about racial, dealing with racism, they're talking about dealing with power structures. And, and when you're talking about dealing with power structures and, and you mix in with that feelings of guilt, you can begin to understand why folks would be confused, frustrated, um, you know, not really quite sure how they're supposed to respond because the things that are being defined as just to call them sins, ills of society or whatever you want to call it. The things that are being uh, assigned as guilt are things that are not in your individual control. And so you're trapped. Yeah. You're trapped. And and as I alluded to earlier, because they define racism 
in terms of these power structures, ultimately the only way to ever be rid of racism is to be rid of the power structure, to be rid of the dominance, to be something other than dominant or something other than majority. And so the sin in their mind is simply being in the majority. Right. Which you know, you don't find anywhere in in the gospel. The gospel never condemns someone for simply being in the majority or the minority. It's of course how you respond to those who are in the minority that is so often the focus. Uh, D'Angelo says on page 46 of her books, although we are individuals, we are also, and perhaps fundamentally, members of social groups. These groups shape us profoundly, and if not more so, um, excuse me, these groups, group memberships shape us profoundly, if not more so, than any unique characteristics that we may claim to possess. So this takes us to another category, I guess you might say, of, of the current narrative, is that in this definition of racism, people are being grouped based on racial or ethnic identities um, in, in terms of the majority and minority culture. But we as Christians fundamentally reject that. Yeah. What does Paul say? I don't know if you're familiar with Galatians 3.28. Uh, there's neither Jew nor Greek, barbarian, slave nor free, but we are all one in Christ. So Paul directly deals with this sort of identity, what we call identity politics today, directly goes after it and tells us that for a Christian, that is no longer a reality. For a Christian, that is no longer true. That, you know, while we may be white or black, while we may be male or female or white, our identity now is in Christ because of the work of the Holy Spirit. So, so the whole definition of racism that's coming out of the current narrative, although it's not discerned by most people, the whole definition is fundamentally different than what we as Christians understand from the Bible. And so to the extent that there may be some intersection, maybe, between what's being said and what the Bible says. We, we resonate with that. But the reality is that intersection is quite small. Yeah, and this is why, this is why the, the, defin- or the way ra- racism is defined, it, it's only applied in one direction because of the definition of dominance and marginal. I mean, it's so just by sheer virtue of the fact that if you are uh, white or Caucasian in this in this country, uh, you as a percentage of the population are the dominant party, and so you you are inherently racist as a result. It's it's built into the system, but there's no such thing as racism that could come from any lesser populist group. Exactly, it's impossible. It, it, in yes. other words, it, it defies the, the the definition. It's just not possible in their worldview. And and people feel that frustration because they feel like this is all slanted. Well, guess what? It, it is. is. Yeah. It is. And and that again fundamentally works against the scripture, right? Because the scripture speaks about the universality of of temptation and sin, right? It's not you know just one particular group. 
D'Angelo on page 142, uh, you know, again of her book, she says this, quote, critical scholars define racism as a systematic relationship of unequal power between white people and peoples of color. Very That's clear. It. That's it. That's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, it's not just white and black. They do this all across the board. Uh, it is men versus women. So men are, whether you ever have treated a woman inappropriately or not, you are sexist. That's right. Just because you are considered to be the dominant group. It's, we might add, heterosexuals versus uh, LGBTQ. That's right. It is, as, as D'Angelo herself says on page 64, it is Christians yep. against Muslims. Yep. So you, by definition, are guilty because you are a Christian, which D'Angelo defines as the dominant group. It makes me chuckle a little bit uh, because we all know that on any given Sunday, the vast majority of people are not attending church That's right. in America. So I don't know how she assumes that we're the dominant group, but but she would put that you know in, in the category of the dominant group. And so you are guilty if you're a Christian because you are oppressive against uh, Buddhists and Jews and Hindus and all non-Christians and so on and so forth. And this gets into what is sometimes called intersectionality, where now you identify with uh, one group, two groups, uh, you know, three groups, and you might be oppressed on multiple levels. And, um, you know, this, this, you know, makes you all the more, in in some ways, all the more... um, uh, it gives you all the more voice right. uh, of complaint as you can heap the guilt on on these dominant groups. So if we as Christians don't understand that, and, and, and when we begin to hear these words systemic, or we hear the word racism, or we hear the word majority, majority culture, if we don't understand what's behind it, then we're going we're gonna to first of all be drawn into supporting a system that fundamentally runs opposite of the message of Scripture. Because the message of Scripture is not that sin is the problem of one group. The message of Scripture is that sin is a problem of everybody. Yeah. The other thing, too, that's, I think, really important to understand as an underlying presupposition of this whole worldview is that there is no such thing as objective truth or universal truth. And and that the things that, that we're talking about, it's all socially constructed. Even language is socially constructed. So, so there, you're, you're talking, if you engage in discussion or discourse with someone whose foundations are really on shifting sand, I mean, they're, they're, and you're trying to come at it from the standpoint of universal transcendent mm-hmm. truth or reality— you're you're basically talking different languages. Well, that and, and that's your sin because now you are imposing your dominant culture, which right. has tried to define these things. Right. The very fact that you say there's there's objective truth just proves your sin of dominance, and that's you know that's where that comes from, obviously. So again, you're just trapped. Yeah. And so you know, just getting back to the the the, the fundamental point, the the, the definition. The, the definition of racism is fundamentally different from a, from a Christian to the narrative that you're hearing in the New York Times or you know, the news media or something like that. The definition of sin is different, whereas we would define sin as hate or malice. They're defining sin as power 
or 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 maybe dominance and just simply being a part of a majority group. Yeah. And that is the guilt that you bear and that's why you you know really can never be free of it. It's not something that you could ever, you know, really repent of and and unfortunately Christians, you know, without recognizing the the foundations of this embrace and imbibe some of that terminology. And and yet that even in itself the Bible does not condemn authority. The Bible does not condemn, we would even say, power. It doesn't condemn people who have influence. It talks about how you use your influence, but being in an influential position or being in a dominant position or being in a powerful position or being in a majority position is not fundamentally wrong. It brings responsibility, but it isn't fundamentally wrong, yeah. and it doesn't assume the same structures and frameworks of identity politics. We don't have time today, but I mean, we could go back and and look at you know the way uh, the way the Old Testament law spoke to the people of Israel in terms of what their responsibilities were toward the foreigner. It it it, it acknowledged some vulnerabilities there, and then gave some 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 statutes that would you know kind of protect the foreigner, which you know as Jesus says, it's all boiled down to loving your neighbor as you would, you know, um, love yourself. So, you know, we don't even need the statutes of the Old Testament law if we just understand the teachings of Christ. So while there needs to be sensitivity to, you know, what, you know, uh, uh, influence we may have or what opportunities we may have to help someone, um, we reject fundamentally the definitions of, of this narrative coming out of critical theory. Because it's not inherently wrong for someone to be in a dominant group. It's not inherently wrong for someone to have power or, you know, to have influence or to be wealthy or any of those things. Can I just say something? I had a thought about this. You know, looking at what we're seeing, you know, on the news and, and on the streets and that kind of thing, there's a lot of young people that are caught up in this. A lot of sort of sort of college age, young adults kind of people that are sort of really wrapped up in the swirl of all this. And I just can't help but think how this doctrine, this, this worldview, the, the, the more you dig into it, it's insane. It, 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 it lacks coherence. It, 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 it could literally drive someone crazy if they get wrapped up into it. And I think that, I think that we're seeing, that's why we're, what we're seeing is so irrational and so even in, in the anger and the rage and the, and the you know the looting, just the, the the mass mob mentality and that kind of thing. These a lot of these people understand and have been taught this worldview in college and that kind of thing, and it it's crazy making. If you stay in it and you imbibe it, it it, it lacks any kind of like you said redemptive mm-hmm. message, but it's also just so incoherent and it, you cycle through this, these absurd notions with no bearings whatsoever to stand on, it could make especially more young and vulnerable and unwise people just crazy. Well, you're a little bit tempted to be like Isaiah in, in Isaiah you know, 44, 43, where he's, he's confronting an unbiblical worldview of people who bow down to idols. And he's actually mocking them 
for the ludicrousness of their worldview. Mm-hmm. You know, about how they'll take a block of wood and half of it they'll carve into a statue and bow down to it, and the other half they'll warm their you know feet from the fire, and and just showing them how internally inconsistent their worldview is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a temptation for us to have that same kind of attitude if if it weren't for the pity. Right. That you have for these There's people. There's a sadness yeah. to it all. It's just heartbreaking. Yes. But but I think the most important thing for us as a church is to see clearly what it is that we're being confronted with, not be duped by it, and make sure that we in turn clearly articulate the gospel, mm-hmm. clearly articulate what God's word says about not just racism, but about sin in general and about the hope, you know, of redemption. And by the way, you know, just sort of wrapping this up a little bit, this this is, um, you know, this is probably another key difference between what we're hearing is that for this narrative, this worldview, racism is not primarily an issue of individuals as much as it is an issue of systems. Mm-hmm. Racism is in systems and not in people. And so, again, leads to kind of the insanity that you're talking about because people don't know where to go. Right. I mean, what can you do with that? And and this is a part of critical theory. It fundamentally um, rejects and and dismisses individualism in favor of corporate identity. And, you know, we've uh, probably all encountered this at some level or another in literature, if not in the classroom, where... Other cultures are exalted because of their corporate identity versus their individualism. You know, all the way, you know, we hear it takes a village to, to raise a child. I mean, it, it just kind of seeps through in little phrases mm-hmm. like that, where, you know, we're being pushed toward not the individualism that we, uh, I think, came to know from our Judeo Christian background. But we're being pushed into a corporate kind of identity, which is a fundamentally non-Christian worldview. Yeah, I, I believe that, and I know there are those that would try to justify it through various places of Scripture, and that's really uh, part of what I kind of want to talk about next time. Yeah, I was just going to ask you. So, where where are we headed? Yeah, I want to get into that aspect and and make a defense if you will of the christian perspective and and why uh you know um a a certain kind of individualism let me say it that way a certain kind of individualism is consistent with our scripture and why the form of corporate um identity that is behind identity politics hmm. Is something that we have to reject. Yeah, um, and some of that's going to, some of that's going to be taking us into the Old Testament, um, looking at what's sometimes called um, corporate confession by a couple of individuals in the Old Testament, and also, you know, some of the prophets and the way they talk about, um, let's just call them systemic problems in their society. So we'll be in the Old Testament, Lord willing, next time when we get together. Great. So stay with us, everyone. Um, you know, we're we're kind of walking through this. Uh, you know, at a at a modest pace and uh, kind of building a a framework for us to really think carefully about this from a number of different important perspectives. So uh, we're looking forward to the next time to being together and just hopefully the Lord will use this to really refine us and make us more like Christ. Great. Thanks, Richard.